Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, officially, if I have not met you yet, my name is Trace. I'm one of the pastors here. And it's good to be in the house of the Lord, is it not? Yes. Amen. Amen. If you also haven't been here or if you're kind of newer, um, we love interaction. Like, this isn't just you sitting and listening for a few minutes. Like, there's some interaction here. I'll ask some questions. I'd love to get your feedback in real time. I think that's important, too. Um, so, by all means, feel free to engage as, as you're led by the Lord to do that. Um, no heckling. Like, let's keep that to a minimum. <clears throat> Unless Mike's up here, then you can do whatever you want. I mean, if you want to, yeah, you can go ahead. Just know that I heckle right back, so <clears throat> just, just beware. <laughs> you heard it outside? Sorry, Mike. thought you were gone. <laughs> So how many of you are familiar with this um, old school position of the royal food taster? You heard of this thing? Okay. Similar to like a cup bearer. But this was an actual position. The, the, the sole responsibility of this guy was to eat the food that was going to be served to the king before the king ate it in case what? In case it was poisoned. Right? That, that was his whole responsibility. And then, let's just say somebody somehow snuck in some poison, the royal food tester eats it, dies, what happens to that guy? He's dead, and then next one comes right in, no big deal, it's like, oh well, at least the king didn't die. That's crazy, right? Like, is that a volunteer position? I mean, how does that work? What's the pay scale like on that thing? Because, man, it's... There's no coming back from that. You, you eat it, and that's it. Rumor has it, there are still some world leaders today that use a food taster. You can use your imagination of who that might be, or who might need to have somebody test their food before they eat, but you know, it's something that may be still in practice today. But I just find that very interesting. But that's the idea that's really tied up in the illustration that we caught last week at the very end of the passage. I didn't spend a lot of time on it because I knew we were going to come into it this week. At the end of verse 9, it said that Jesus tasted death for us and that he died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. Have you heard that before? Okay, Jesus died in our place so that we wouldn't have to. So clearly he can't mean physical death because we're all going to die. We know that, right? Everybody's clear on that part? Like, unless something happens miraculously, we are all going to die at some point. So if he's not talking about physical death, Jesus didn't die for our physical death, then what kind of death is he talking about? Spiritual. Okay, I'm liking this. Like, yeah, you were on that. Okay. Spiritual death. So what is this? This is, it's judgment followed by an eternal separation from God. That's, that's what we're talking about here. That's Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, um, And just as it appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Okay, so we've got some things to work out here, I think, as we look at our text this morning. And we're going to read it here shortly, but just I want you to keep in mind this idea of Jesus tasting death on our behalf, dying in our place, a spiritual death. Got that? You in the back, you paying attention over there? Nice. That's the the youth group. I wasn't talking to Jerry. (laughs) That's the youth group. Okay, if you have a Bible, open it up 
If you want a Bible, there's some over there on the table. Everything on that table also, by the way, on the right side. The books are all free. They're free resources, so feel free to take any of those things, including the Bibles. We're in Hebrews chapter 2. We did the first half last week. We're going to pick up in verse 10 this week, and we're going to continue on. Okay. Let me just press record. I did. Okay. Uh, Hebrews 2, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's our text for this morning. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help to walk through that. Father, we thank you, Lord, for another day of life. Jesus, we thank you so much for your kindness, your, your goodness to us in giving to your people this word, this instruction for life and for the plans that you have for us on this planet, Lord God. You have plans for us. You have a design for us, and you have things that you've called us to do, Lord, and we want to be faithful in that. We want to be as equipped as we can possibly be. So, Lord, let this word influence our decisions. Let it shape our heart and our intentions of what we're doing. God, use this, I pray, to help each one of us go forward with confidence and boldness to proclaim the truth that you truly have tasted death on our behalf. And we ask these things in your name, Christ. Amen. All right, my friends, if you have questions this morning, please feel free to text them to the number on the screen. Mike and I will come up here at the end of service. We'll, we'll try to engage with you a little bit on those. But that's just uh, one way that we can interact with you, and we'd love for you to participate in that way. Okay, so let's – there's a lot here going on, but I want to just start with the baseline of where we got to start from this text. And that is this, that Jesus attained salvation for all who believe in him by becoming human – Right? He became a man. He lived a perfect life. He suffered. He died. He defeated sin and death, being the one true priest. Nothing crazy on there. I don't think we should be all on the same page there. He tasted death on our behalf. So when we read this text this morning, we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions that will help guide us through that. And this is what we need to know. How does he do this? How does he taste death for us? Like, what does that mean exactly? What, what are the results of him tasting death for us? What does that look like for us? And then how do we benefit from that? I'm going to broadly, hopefully, answer those three questions because I think that's what we need to get out of the text. If he did, in fact, taste death for us, how did he do it? What does that mean for us, and how do we benefit from it? So here's where I'm, here's where I'm going to start with this. That he tasted death for us, it means that there's some sort of substitutionary aspect of his own death. 
And I think it's a really interesting word picture that the writer uses here. <clears throat> because to taste something doesn't mean just to kind of catch the flavor profile, like we're watching some Food Network thing, right? We're not talking like Bobby Flay or who is your favorite celebrity chef? Come on, give me some names. Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. Heidi says herself. <laughs> I like it. Okay. That's not it. That's not what we're talking about here. It's not like, let me get, there's a little saffron in there. Like, it's not just tasting a, a flavor profile. It means putting something into your body, ingesting it, and then dealing with whatever was that went into your body. Just like the royal food taster. He wasn't just kind of swishing around his mouth and go, yeah, it tastes pretty good. No, you swallow it, you ingest it, and whatever happens, happens. And God is at the center of all of this. If you look at how he begins in the verse in the verse 10, he says that for whom and by whom all things are made. God, all things are made by him and all things are made for him. In other words, God made everything in this universe for himself and they point to him and it's for his glory. It's to make his name great. Can you see that from the beginning of the, of the text? Just kind of making that point like this is. This is who this is really about. But the beauty of this is that he includes us in that. Because the rest of the verse summarizes the work that God sent Jesus to do. He said he brought many sons to glory. You see that in, in the following verse? Mm -hmm. To bring many sons to glory. And the word sons there is in, incorporative of all people. Sons and daughters to glory. In other words, he adopted people Humanity, those who believe in him, into the family of God. That's what this means, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Not only, though, does he redeem us, which is a beautiful and wonderful thing, brought into the family, but he shares his glory with us. That's a crazy thought. We're not going to talk a lot about that, but the glory of God, and he shares it with us, is something you might want to pray through and read a little bit more and try to discover. It's not the exact point here, but that's a, a fascinating thing. So I'm just going to move past that, though. I think this is one of the reasons this familial thing of, of sons and daughters, the language that he's using, is one of the reasons why he goes three times to the Old Testament. Did you catch that? In my Bible, it's all one block. But in the other Bible I was studying out, it's, it's very clear that these are actual scriptures coming from the Old Testament. In verses 12 and 13, you see that? If you were here last week, you know how to find where those verses are from, right? We look at the little number, little footnote, and then you go over to the side and you find the column. So I'm not going to quiz you today, but just for your own edification, just look and go, okay, where is this from? So you know that you can find it. Got it? He's doing this, I think, to help us and his original audience to show them that this was a part of God's plan all along. This wasn't like... Okay, Jesus is here now, so we're going to have to kind of figure something out about bringing these people in. No, this was his plan from the get-go. That those he redeems and Christ himself all have the same source, the Father. We are familial. We're connected in ways that, man, the Old Testament speaks very clearly about. That's what these verses are there for, to prove the point. And verse 11 tells us that the gospel... The good news about Jesus transforms believers into children of God. And ultimately, siblings, 
spiritual siblings with Jesus. Right? We're, we're adopted into the family. We belong. He's created us and redeemed us for his glory. And through this amazing process, we are then able to reflect the goodness and glory of God. That's the whole reason we're here, right? To reflect the glory and goodness of God to those around us. Al Mohler says we are to be a public display of the glory of God. How many of you desire to be a public display of the glory of God? We have that through our inheritance because of who we are as redeemed children of God. The reason I'm working so hard to establish this idea is because this is, this is what is at stake when we talk about how Jesus tasted death for us. If he did not do that, then everything we just talked about, that is not true. We are not children of God. We are just out on our own on a path toward eternity separated from God. So I'm hopefully going to convince you that this, in fact, did take place and how he did that for us. For us. So what Jesus did in accomplishing tasting death for us is nothing short of miraculous. It's a beautiful, beautiful image that we have as inheriting his glory and children of God. So let's ask these questions that we talked about earlier. How does Jesus do this and what are the results? I think we need to be reminded first, real briefly, what we talked about last week. We talked about that justice, remember we said justice under the old covenant, the Mosaic law, way back in the Old Testament, justice was demanded under the Old Testament law. Meaning that if you fell short, you messed up, you sinned, there was some sort of punishment, right? There was something necessary to account for that broken commandment, a penalty, so to speak. And usually it came in the form of what? A sacrifice. Blood. Animals, right? Birds and that kind of thing. And then we decided, based on what the the scripture said, that if that was the case under the Old Testament, how much more is justice going to be demanded under the new covenant with Jesus, the Son of God? That was the point the author was making. Like, this was true here. How much more so now is that justice going to be demanded under the new covenant? And so when we take these next few verses in that context, that justice will be served, and he demands it, rightfully so, for the forgiveness of sins, it's what the Bible calls a substitutionary atonement. Now don't get freaked out by that word, it's a big old fancy word, and we're going to talk about it briefly at the end, but that's, that's what the Bible refers to as substitutionary atonement. But at the core of that idea is something we've already begun talking about. And that's the idea of Jesus tasting death for everyone. So substitutionary nature to the means that God brings for salvation. And we'll we'll, we'll get there, but let's continue through and look at verse 14. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus became flesh and blood. He was like us. He partook of the same things. Right? How many of you have watched The Chosen with us or seen The Chosen? Right? We see the, the human side of Jesus, right? He got hungry. He got tired. What else? Did, what other? What other things did he experience? He got mad at He saw that people got mad, and he probably got frustrated, right, with some people. Grief, sorrow. He 
cried tears. Like there was a, everything that we experience as human beings, Jesus experienced. And, and I think that matters because when you understand that the God of this universe became a human like you and me and experiences everything that we experience, when we go to him, he can empathize with us. He knows what we're going through. And because he knows what we're going through, he knows exactly what we need. That's how this, this section closes. If you look at the very last verse, he says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be where we are. And that should give us tremendous confidence that he knows exactly how to, to lead us through those situations. So it matters that he became like us and that he can relate to us, but it also matters that he became like us because in order to taste death for us, he needed to be like us. It was necessary for him to be human. He couldn't just you know, send angels or do some other thing. It was required by the way God designed it for him to be human. He, he was carrying out the specific work that Christ or that, that God the Father had called Jesus to accomplish. And I think this gets to the nuts and bolts of the how question. So I want you to look at verse 14 again. He says that through death, this is the other part of verse 14, through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil. So Jesus came to defeat two main enemies. What do we think the two main enemies are? Death and Satan. Thank you, Audrey. The only person who said something. What? <laughs> Did somebody else say something back there too? Well, obviously they were super confident because I didn't hear a thing. <laughs> it's right there, guys. Come on. It's right there. Death and Satan. The two things that Jesus came to accomplish. Now, let's be real. Death is one of those things that we don't think about often. And we talk about even less. Until what? Until it happens. Until it slaps you upside the head. Whether you lose a loved one, right? You have a brush with death. Or perhaps even you get some devastating news about your health. Until you're faced with death. It's just not something that we think or talk about. But no matter how hard we try to avoid the topic, death is inescapable. I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer here. I'm trying, though, to give us the point that he's saying here. Without the gospel, without the gospel, the reality of death is terrifying. Death is the most frightening thing that we can encounter without the gospel, without the hope of eternal life. That's why the writer says that people, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong slavery. Did you catch that part? Subject to lifelong slavery because of their fear of death. And the enemy uses this as leverage against humanity. He does. But if the gospel is true, then death has no hold on us. Death is simply the doorway through which we pass from death to life. I love that illustration. I heard it in a sermon a couple weeks ago by, by Colby Gorman at Pillar Dumfries. He was talking about just Clint's death and all these kinds of things. Um, but he, he used that, that language of death being the doorway from which we pass from death to life. That's a beautiful image, right? And if you know the story, you know that on the third day after his death on the cross, Jesus rose from the grave. Amen. He defeated death and he secured our salvation. 
and eternity with him. Isn't that the heart of John 3.16? Somebody lay John 3.16 on me. You were doing great until you got to the most important part. <laughs> Should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the heart of what we're talking about here. In fact, John 5.24 goes even further and tells us, Truly, truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, what? Does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That's a beautiful, powerful, wonderful truth. Can I get an amen? amen? Be encouraged that we will pass from death to life because Jesus tasted death on our behalf. But Jesus also defeated Satan. Now, depending on your background and your upbringing, where you come from, we all have varying views on Satan and who Satan is and, and all these kinds of things. But let us agree at the very least on what the Bible tells us about who Satan is. So just give me a couple of um, biblical descriptors of the devil. The thief in the night. A lion. Yeah. Liar, enemy, deceiver. Prince of darkness. God of this world. There's a lot of, of labels and titles that, that, um, that the Bible uses. The beast? Okay, Jerry, that's enough. <clears throat> I, I will focus on things like deceiver, destroyer, tempter. You said lion. Prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's what Peter tells us. In other words, he is up to no good. <laughs> and his primary focus, his primary mission is to keep people from believing the gospel. That's his primary mission. And he will use whatever means necessary to be able to keep people from believing the gospel and living it out for themselves. But what does it mean then that Jesus would defeat and destroy the devil? Because as we said, look around the world and it's very evident and very apparent that Satan is still very active in this world, right? So it says that he defeated him though, so... What's going on there? What's happening? Here's, here's what I think is the best way to describe this. It simply means that Satan does not have the ability to incur any ultimate long-term spiritual damage to God's people. Right? He may be a liar and an accuser of the brethren, that is God's people, but his accusations do not stick. They do not hold up. They are simply meant to be a distraction to keep our eyes off of Jesus and to keep them on ourselves. That's what the distractions, the lies, and all of the things that the enemy tries to do is to keep your eyes on you, on your problems, on what's going on in your life instead of keeping your eyes on Jesus. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time here as just in praying through like, Lord, what do you want to talk through about this message? This is one of the things that I just want to spend a little bit more time on because I think the Lord would have us to do that. Because I know many of God's people wrestle with this reality of being accused by Satan. Mm -hmm. And it happens in a variety of ways. And so I just want to touch on a few of them. So I want us to be honest about this. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but just be honest with yourself 
when it comes to this stuff. One of the first ways that I think that these things happen, these lies and these accusations, comes through negative self-talk. Negative self-talk. Repeating things about ourselves that just aren't true. We're no good. We're worthless. We have nothing of value to offer to this world. Are these things true about anyone? Are these things true about anyone? Come on, people. No, it is not true. Nobody is worthless. Nobody is no good. We are all image bearers created in the image of Christ. There is good in everyone. There's value in every human being. These are lies from the enemy. I mean, we must seek to replace those lies with the truth. That's how we do this, right? We replace the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. What does the truth of God tell us about us truly? We're fearfully and wonderfully made, right? We've all been given unique gifts from the Spirit in order to serve God's people. His mercies are new every morning, every single morning. So when those thoughts creep in and they begin to bring you down, you have to work to replace them with the truth about who God says you are. Because the rest are lies from the enemy. Negative self-talk is a real way that the enemy works his way in to get your eyes off of Jesus and on yourself. Another way the devil works against us is by trying to convince us that God's promises aren't for me. Right? I have faith to believe that God's promises work for you, they work for you, they work for you, but for some reason they just don't work for me. His, his principles and his truth about you know, helping people and forgiving people and uh, forgetting sins, that just doesn't apply to me. I think we have a very clear biblical principle that can apply if this is something that you struggle with. And that is, God's word is true. And it's not contingent upon you or your performance. It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with Jesus. In addition to that, the word tells us he, he shows no partiality to people. You are not just some anomaly to where, have you ever seen World War Z? Yeah. Zombie movie, right? Yeah. Okay, if you haven't, then you're just going to have to trust me on this. Right? Zombie virus is going through the entire world, right? But if you have a sickness in your body, the zombies will not attack you. And so there's these scenes where this horde of zombies is coming towards these people, and this guy just kind of ducks down, and they like a, a river around a rock, they just move right around him, and they just keep going. Like, don't even touch him. That's not you and the promises of God. It doesn't work that way. Again, it's a lie from the enemy. And here's what you need to say to yourself. Either the word of God and his promises are true for all people, or they're true for no people. So if you are you working through some challenges of saying, I have faith for you, but I can't have faith for me, that's a lie from the enemy. He also tries to keep us down, and maybe this is one of the ones I hear about the most, by trying to remind us often of the hurtful and harmful things that we've done in the past. Satan is an expert at convincing us 
that we need to be ashamed and harsh toward ourselves because of the things that we've done in our past. Again, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand because I know every hand will go up if you've ever experienced those lies that tell you, who do you think you are? Do you think you're going to go out and be a witness for Christ? You did this, you did this, you did this. Yeah, right. Lies. Lies, lies, lies. Part of Jesus' defeat over sin and death is that there is victory over sin and freedom from sin. Can you put up the slide that says freedom from sin slide? Here's just a couple of scriptural examples. I know it's small, but you can look at it with your binoculars on. (laughs) Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus answered that most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever. But a son abides forever. A son, a daughter, us. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Yes, free indeed. Moreover, the law entered that the offense may abound. We talked about this last week. The reason the law exists is to show people how much we need a Savior. But where sin abounds, grace abounded much more. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. And he shall bring forth the Son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We have a freedom from sin and a freedom from the guilt and shame of sin. Later in chapter 8 of this book, the writer is going to address a quote from the prophet Jeremiah. Can you put up Hebrews 8, 12? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, iniquities and I will remember their sins No more. If the Lord has washed over your sins and remembers them no more, then we have no right to remember them and to continue to revisit them over and over again that bring guilt and shame. That is a lie from the enemy. It is under the blood of Jesus. It is remembered no more. So don't let the enemy bring those things to your mind. Love covers a multitude of sin and keeps no record of wrong. That's not just a description of earthly love, but reflects the love that Christ has for his followers. Brothers and sisters, the devil is a liar. Don't listen to him. Fight back against the enemy and stand firm on his word. What he has done in accomplishing tasting for our death brings us freedom, grace, and forgiveness. Ultimate victory, my friends, we have in Christ. And we can stand on that and trust in him and hope for forgiveness and joy. I hope that makes sense. Satan is a very real enemy in that he can throw us off the path in following him, but he cannot remove us from the course. And we get distracted all the time, but he's not going to pluck us out and throw us off the course. Victory is ours in Christ. All right, let me start to tie all this together. Um, I told you we were going to tackle the idea of substitutionary atonement, this phrase, because it is foundational to our salvation. It's what makes everything we just said a reality. And I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over it. I don't want to spend too little time on it, but I just want to summarize this key doctrine because we can get way down in the weeds and, and, and I don't want to do that. Let me just kind of hit the wave tops on this. 
Let me read the last two verses of our passage and then we'll, we'll talk through it. So verses 17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So verse 17 really is the heart of this whole section. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. You see that where he says it? Now this only makes sense in light of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Remember, he's writing to Jewish believers who would have been very well acquainted with all of the systems and rules and sacrifices and all that stuff under the Old Testament. So back in the day, on the Day of Atonement, a day set aside in the Jewish calendar, the, the high priest would go before God on behalf of all of Israel and offer a sacrifice on their behalf. He would represent all of the people of God offering this substitutionary sacrifice on their behalf. That was the great day of atonement that they would do each and every year. And there would be a shedding of blood for the sins, rebellion of God's people on that day. But it was temporary and it was incomplete. What they did back then, temporary and incomplete. It did not satisfy the wrath of God. Remember what I said at the beginning of this message and last week, justice is a key component to this whole process of our salvation. God is just, is he not? He is a just God. He does not forgive our sins by sweeping them under the carpet. There's no justice in that. There's no accountability in that. And if he did that, he would not be a just God. At the cross, God poured out his wrath against sinners onto Christ. And by doing that, he satisfied God's demand for justice for the punishment of sins. You see, two very important things took place on the cross. Jesus took our punishment in our place. He was our substitute. And that satisfied God's wrath. And our sins were atoned for. Two very important things. We talk a lot about our sins being forgiven. Because that's a very important aspect of this. But the other side of God's justice being preserved is that the punishment that we had coming because of our rebellion was still poured out, only it was poured out on Christ. That's how he maintains his righteousness and his justice. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Our debt was canceled. It was no longer, and it is no longer held against us. You see, this great exchange took place on the cross. Our sin, our unrighteousness, our, our filth exchanged for God's, Jesus' perfect, sinless holiness. And so when God looks at us, he sees that righteousness. He sees what Christ gave for us and that he ascribed to us through his death. Can you put up Colossians 2, 13 through 15 that we can drive this point home? And you, all of us, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal command. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the ruler's and authorities, Satan, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. My friends, this is how Jesus tasted death 
for us. His tremendous act of grace and love. So today, if you find yourself living in any way that denies this very real truth, do something about it. Are you holding on to sin, shame, and guilt? Are you believing lies from the enemy? When problems come your way, is your approach to just ignore it and continue on? Fall to your knees today. Repent and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He tasted death on our behalf that we might have freedom from sin. And he can understand and relate to us in everything we're doing, even in our temptation. I love that's how he ends this phrase, and that's how we'll end here as well. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help every one of us who are being tempted. You find yourself tempted today? This past week? Every single one of us. Right? Tempted in whatever way the enemy tempts us. And he's able to to stand there side by side, walking with us. So trust in the promises of God. Trust in the freedom. And ignore, push past the lies of the enemy who seek to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the heart of the passage today, my friends. And I think it's the culmination of this little passage so far of chapters 1 and 2, where it says, Jesus, we're elevating Jesus above everything else, greater than the angels, greater than the law. We're going to see next week he's greater than Moses. But he's greater than our circumstances, our difficulties, our past, our current situation. We have everything we need in Christ. So let's elevate him in our own lives as well. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for the way in which you love us. God, you sent your only son to be a propitiation, a a sacrifice, a substitute. And you poured out your wrath upon him that we deserved for our rebellion and our sin. God, we had it coming. But by grace, by your grace and your love, As we read, you passed over that sin and nailed it to the cross because of the finished work of Jesus, because of his sinless and perfect blood poured out for us. And God, help us now to live in light of that truth, that we have victory. Because we have a very real enemy who roars like a roaring lion, trying to devour us, trying to keep us off track, trying to keep us attracted. Really, Lord, trying to keep those who are yet believers from understanding and seeing the truth of the gospel. And you have called us to be a reflection of your goodness and glory, that this truth might be magnified in our own lives. Not perfection, Lord God, but obedience and faithfulness in following after you. Lord, I pray for every person here who today is struggling with something that the enemy has lied to them about. And I pray that they would lay it down at the foot of the cross. Whether it's been a week that they've been dealing with it or a decade, Father, you have overcome all of it through Christ. Bring freedom, peace, hope, joy, strength in everything and in every way. 
God, let us not leave this place holding on to anything that the devil has lied to us about. We lay it at your feet. And we believe in the effectiveness of the cross and the fact that you tasted death for us. We love you so much, Jesus. We praise your holy name. Help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.